and you're listening to the Talkline Network over WVIP 93.5 FM HD2, New Rochelle, New York. We are America's only Jewish radio program on regular broadcast radio on the Internet and digital platforms. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome back to Masks Weekly Radio Show on Family Matters. Mask mothers and fathers align saving kids, kids of all ages and all stages for all mental struggles. If you know someone that needs a referral for a parent support group, an inpatient, outpatient program, a therapist, psychiatrist, please call out confidential number at 718-758-0400. I'll repeat the number. Maybe you want to jot it down for yourself, your friend, a neighbor, or someone you usually would sit next to in shul. Remember, our number when you call, all calls are confidential. You can call anonymously. Again, our number is 718-758-0400. And if somebody wants a free naloxone kit for prevention of opioid overdose, call us. We could train you by Zoom and mail out your free naloxone kit, another form of Narcan. So tonight, I I mean, I'm really, really honored. This one is like over-the-top honored because I must say that Lou Abrams is somebody that I so respect. For 25 years, I've been following him, working alongside with many families with him. And I want to say that there has been, it's been such a pleasure always collaborating and helping families together. So I'd like to welcome you on, Dr. Lou Abrams. How are you? Hi, Ruchama Klapman. What a pleasure to be here to be involved with mask over the last 20 plus years has been just a bracha in my life for my for my family for patients for the recovery world it's just been it's too complex to speak about other than it's been tremendous well absolutely not only for me but for my staff as well i speak of from my staff, how wonderful it is always working with you to help families. So I just want everyone to know that Dr. Lou Abrams, I mean, the name of his practice is called Heart and Soul Therapy. And I could not have named it any better than that, I must say. Lou, that is who you are. 
about helping families, you know, have peace and manifest joy and balance. And you've been doing this for more than 30 years to help heal emotional wounds and change patterns and lead happier lives. And I, I just want to say the recovery community is so lucky to have you work alongside with them as well. Uh, let's mention you helping with Menachem Poznanski, Sani Perlman, all our colleagues that work in this area. Uh, Lou, you've been a leader. You've been there through the Yatskin days, the inpatient program. Shout out to the um, Howard Jonas and his wonderful wife and family uh, who had the inpatient program with so many lives were saved. Um, it's been so many years that we've been working with these families and they are really doing very well, those families, most of them that were uh, at the Yatskin Center when you were running it. So I want to get right to it and that is we are talking about addiction and can you first share a little bit about how you got into the work around addiction and um, also why you chose addiction as a specialty, please? I think, I think addiction chose me. It's very ironic. Sometimes um, this is the way Hashem works. I, I got into the field of addiction um, after graduating um, uh, social work school in 1980. Uh, I got my first job at the Middletown Alcohol Outpatient Clinic in New York, in Orange County, New York, not far from Curious Joel in, in Middletown. And, um, you know, I was with all these, uh, these incredibly powerful, experienced older people than me. The people that I worked with, my colleagues, were at least 20 years older than me. I was a, I was a real, you know, wet behind the ears out of graduate school, and lo and behold, I had my own problem with alcohol and drugs. And I got my first job at an alcohol outpatient clinic. Think of how Hashem works behind the scenes. And very soon after I got this job, and these people were teaching me about addiction treatment, I realized I needed help myself. I needed help. And I went and got help. And came back, and they allowed me to come back. Something that probably wouldn't happen the way it happened in 1980. But they allowed me to come back, and I've been working with addicts, alcoholics, and their families ever since. I don't talk about my recovery as much as other people. I was taught my self-disclosure about my own addiction needs to be only for the sake of other people, not for me. I get my recovery from doing things outside of my professional life which includes going to meetings, going to 12-step meetings. I try and practice what I, what I preach, and that's, that's been my story. <clears throat> wow. So um, for those that may not really understand addiction fully, can you share the definition of addiction, please? Yes. Addiction is we – can, we can simplify it. We can make it very scientific. We can make it complex. My, my down-to-earth – 
definition of addiction is a behavior or a substance that continues to be either ingested in the substance area like alcohol or drugs or a behavior like food addiction, like gambling and money addictions, betting addictions, like sex addiction, like workaholism. All of those are behavior. So we have two basic categories, substances and process addictions. You'll notice that food addiction is both. It's both a process and a substance. But the, 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 the definition for me, for example, of an alcoholic is somebody in whose life alcohol has been causing problems. And I look at problems in terms of consequences. Most people that drink alcohol do not have problems with alcohol. They drink in what we call a social way. They don't have consequences. Nothing happens to them when they drink. There are select there are a select number of people percentage wise, you know, it's very tough to say it's a moving target, but somewhere about one out of ten people that drinks alcohol has a problem with alcohol. And the problem manifests in them losing things. They lose material things, they lose money, they lose homes, they lose jobs, but way before those the money and the homes and the jobs happen, most of the time, they lose more intangible abstract items like self-esteem, like respect of other people, like trust of other people, like their word, like their integrity. These are more under-the-cover kind of very subtle areas of law. Sometimes, you know, people drink and they drive as, as adolescents, God forbid, and they lose their life or somebody else loses their life because of their drunken driving, and that's, that happens immediately. That's not the norm, per se. It can happen. It's very dangerous. So alcoholism is a, and, and addiction is a phenomenon of people losing things. They don't expect to lose things. They don't want to lose things. But they lose, and they are responsible for what happens to them. They need to, if they're ever going to get well, they must gain a responsible stance on their lives, and particularly their relationship with these processes and substances. They need to be accountable and they need help. People don't do this by themselves with success. They can stop and start and stop and start. What what we do with people as addiction professionals is we help them get ready. And if they're ready, we, we, we help them with a pathway to stop and to stay stopped. That's, that's, that's the goal. The goal is not to put a Band-Aid on this. The goal is a life-changing, one-day-at-a-time process of moving from active addiction to recovery. You know, Lou, you brought up self-esteem and young adults, you know, they always want to try to fit in, please their friends, and they experiment with alcohol and drugs. So I'd like you to touch on that, about the importance of the conversation prior to them being teenagers on the streets and what parents could offer uh, we have wine around Passover, Purim, Sukkot, Friday nights, every simcha, every occasion is around wine. So what does that conversation sound like to you? What do you offer parents the language in having such a conversation? Right. I mean, you, you mentioned this word that is a, a very broad word that is so important, the conversation. The conversation takes on a lot of different dimensions and, and three big areas. One of the areas is family, and you said it, parents. Another area is the shul that the kids are involved with. And finally, 
as important, if not even more important, over time is the, the yeshiva, the school that the kids go to, and what what the people that head up these different components of a, of a child and then a teenager's life, what they what position they're in to present and to initiate the conversation. So, I got to tell you, one of the one of the long, long time examples that I give are what happens in many homes when kids become teenagers, when a child becomes a teenager, there are some homes in, in the, the Jewish community where alcohol disappears, meaning the family says, we don't want to have alcohol around, we don't want it to be tempting, we don't want to have it, we don't want to encourage it, we're going to have kiddish on Friday nights, for example, with grape juice, and we're going to do it from the time a kid hits teenage years or thereabouts. That's one way of, of addressing alcohol, per se. Another way is parents, and there are many of them, who say, we're not going to stop having alcohol. It's not real. The world has alcohol in it. We're missing a tremendous opportunity if we stop the alcohol being ingested by adults, people that are of legal age to drink. We want to role model how people drink socially and healthily and how you can have kiddish and not abuse alcohol. Those are two different ways. The, the, the missing ingredient or the key ingredient in both of those hashkafa are, do we talk about this? Your word. Do we have a conversation? If we don't have a conversation and we just either get rid of alcohol without any words about it, without any teaching opportunity, or we continue to be role models and we, we behave healthily, but there's no verbal communication. There's no discussion about what it means to drink socially, what it means to drink when you're of an age legally to be able to drink, what it means to stop, what it means to not have your personality start to change because of the alcohol. If we miss the opportunity to talk, we're missing a huge, huge part of this learning process. And so there's got to be a desensitization and a lot of the work that I've done in the past has been to help parents become less um, fearful about bringing this topic up, about actually initiating this topic, because kids are going to learn about this in some way, shape, or form. They're going to either learn the truth and the facts, or they're going to learn in a much more informal way some of the myths and the misconceptions and the misinterpretations. And we can be in a position to really help. We can't we can't force anything when they leave the house. When they leave the house, they're out of our jurisdiction, and that's that's a real tough phenomenon. But the older a kid gets, the older a teenager gets and a young adult, the less control adults, parents, loved ones, whoever they are that, that are in that kid's corner, the less control they have over that. So we want to prepare them. We want to give them as much healthy information, which in my estimation best comes from the form of dialogue. So I teach parents, you have to know what you're talking about. If you talk in the Welterine, as my father would say, if you talk off the cuff and you don't really have the appropriate, accurate information, your kid is going to say, you don't know what you're talking about. Because often kids know more than us at a certain point. Kids have been exposed to this, the, this dialogue if, if they are exposed to the media. Alcohol is everywhere and, and substances as well. And so we need to have the facts. We also need to partner, and this is why MASK is such an, a phenomenal support uh, avenue for parents. 
we need to be able to talk with other parents. We need to be able to talk with parents that have more information with than we do. We eventually need to be able to talk with parents that need information. And because we have learned and we have gone through the process of getting information, we can help. We can pass it on. So those are two big, big, big areas. But we can't avoid this. We can't just pretend and hope and pray. You got to do more than just to fill it. We need to do footwork. Right. And, you know, we get a lot of questions in the groups to the therapists. All our groups are facilitated by therapists. We have Sunday night, Dr. Shmuel Brachfeld, uh, Dr. Debbie Ackman, also Sunday night, Monday night, Dr. Debbie Ackman, Tuesday night, Dr. Trisha Tia, Wednesday night, Rabbi Dr. Ben Tworski are some of the groups. We have a DBT group running. Uh, we have uh, Nurtured Heart groups starting after Pesach. Anybody interested in uh, attending a group by Zoom, uh, please give us a call at 718-758-0400. Well, one of the questions that come up very often in group is, how does a parent respond when the parent said, so, Dad, did you drink as a kid? <laughs> yeah, it's a slippery slope. It's not, an easy, it's not an easy question to answer. If it's answered by avoiding it, the kid will know. And there'll be, there'll be certain, certainly a suspicion that something's being hidden from me. If it's answered in graphic terms, it's the other extreme. And it's probably not the greatest thing for a kid to hear about. If it's answered truthfully, if it's answered in a way that's real, and there is a certain appropriate amount of information that's given about what my trials and tribulations were. In my family, it was very easy because I was a recovering alcoholic before I had children. And so my children, until they became adults, were never at a Seder where there was alcohol. There was never alcohol. It was always grape juice. But that's not the norm. I don't, I don't know that every kid grows up in a family with a recovering alcoholic. Most kids grow up in families where there's alcohol, where there's alcohol in the house and there's drinking that goes on. Hopefully it's healthy. But I, I think that it behooves a parent, if there were challenges in, in adolescence, I think it's important to talk about that, to say that. It, it can't be done as a peer, as a parent would talk with another parent. It needs to be done appropriately in an age-appropriate way. It also depends truly on how old the child is because kids that are 10 years old need different information than kids that are 15 years old. You know, I'm glad you brought up about Passover. Pesach is coming in a few weeks, and that is why we're doing this show tonight. Not the week of Pesach when you may not be listening to the show or you may be cleaning the fridge or the oven and not have time. We are doing this show with plenty of time in advance so that we are prepared. And the preparation that I want to bring to the attention of everyone is that people may be struggling with alcohol abuse and misuse, and therefore we're asking that everyone's home has the availability of grape juice on their table. And please, Dr. Abrams, what do you want to say to my audience about when somebody says, pass Chaim the bottle of alcohol for the four cups, and he says, 
No, thank you. I'll just have grape juice. What should the host then say? Should the host say, no, this is a great bottle of expensive wine. It's a $99 bottle. Taste it. It's wonderful. Or what? Yeah. Great question and very practical, very real phenomenon that comes up. And and the first thing I would say about Chaim, your example of somebody who is not drinking, is Chaim really needs to prepare way before he's sitting at that table, that Seder table, way before this this very, very predictable occurrence is going to happen where somebody will be pouring him. Sometimes sometimes glasses are filled with wine before people sit down. That the the, the table is so Chaim needs to be assertive and as comfortable as he can be, he needs to let whoever the host is, whoever might be in that position, to pour him uh, or to to give him that bottle of wine. He needs to be able to have said, I'm not drinking. He doesn't have to go into a whole... Takes a lot of courage. Tremendous courage. And that's why you, you don't want to chance mustering up that courage on the spot. He needs to, I mean, this is what we do with people that are in recovery, that are, that are in, that are going to be going through a very predictable Seder where there'll be wine. There are some Seders where there's no wine, as I mentioned, but most Seders have wine. And, and many people look forward, and I'm not talking about people that have problems with alcohol. Many people who don't have problems with alcohol look forward to drinking at the Seder. And there's nothing wrong with it as long as they, they don't have consequences, as I said. But there are going to be people inadvertently at the Seder that can't drink. Some of them will be because of medical issues. They're taking medication that doesn't mix well with alcohol. It's dangerous. And there'll be people that have problems and are abstinent. And that needs to be respected. That needs to be, it doesn't have to be a, a side focus that becomes the focus of the Seder. That's not necessary. It can shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. It should not be. It's, it, it's embarrassing to a lot of people, especially newcomers. But I, I'll tell you, you show me somebody that is pushing alcohol in whatever way, shape, or form. I'll tell you somebody that's, uh, I'll tell you that that's somebody that has something else going on with the alcohol. My experience has been people that really push out alcohol and it's very, very important for other people to be drinking with them. There's something going on with their own drinking often. Okay. And it's, again, it's not the focus. But a social drinker offers alcohol, may not know that Chaim is a recovering person or that he's had some abuse with alcohol and he's really trying to be abstinent. He will not or she will not push this. If they push, somebody else should get involved and say, please, it's not okay. Stop. You need to stop. Right. And it's important that mental health meds do interfere with that. Alcohol interferes with that. Including whether it's a diabetic, even that can't have it. So nobody should be questioned. If somebody says no, let's respect the no and have grape juice along your table. Amen. Very important. Right. Um, so what have you seen um, different, uh, the trend on the rise since COVID when it comes to alcohol abuse? I think that, you know, people that are depressed, people that are anxious, people that are having heightened um, symptoms of, of mental health issues and challenges, sometimes, not all the time, it'd be a gross generalization to, to say that it's across the board, but in some situations, people are looking 
to supplement their their happiness, their their light feelings with alcohol. They may be more apt to experiment if they have not checked alcohol out, if they haven't had any drinking history. There, there is certainly a rise, uh, and it's a very general statement, so take it with a grain of salt. There's a there's a rise in in situations that really can lead to abuse, and we need to be cognizant and careful about that. So. What would you like to say to that alcoholic that may be listening to the show? What tips do you want to share with them? With the person who's active, there's two types yes. of alcoholics, one who's active and one who is in recovery, the active person. I mean, I would appeal to that person to remember because if that person has a history with alcohol and has alcoholism, there's a good chance he or she has had abusive experiences and maybe even at Seder tables and that this is an opportunity this year to really if you can to do it differently to really do it differently people that start drinking and have problems they often continue to drink until there are consequences sometimes they're able to control sometimes they're very functional and they are able to drink in a way on occasion that's not unhealthy that's not problematic but Especially when there are when there are family members and there are kids watching. I mean, there's tremendous role modeling that goes on at the Seder table. There's opportunity for adults and young adults even and teenagers to be healthy, healthy role models, and that includes their use or abstinence with alcohol. Please remember you're in a context with people, usually loved ones, and your behavior has an effect on people. And you may you, you need to decide this before you sit down to the Seder. Because once you sit down, and if you do start drinking and you have a problem, it's Russian roulette. Who knows what's going to happen? That's the problem with, with people that have problems. Often it's very unpredictable. One time I drink, I'm okay. The next time I drink, my personality is out of bounds. The next time I drink, I fall asleep. You want to really do some preparation. Absolutely. Now, parents don't always have a say, especially with adult children, not only when it comes to alcohol, with all mental health issues. You know, once they're over 18, they can say, I don't want you involved in my life, in my treatment, and parents' hands are tied. doesn't matter whether they're going through a manic stage, whether they're an alcoholic, whether they're dependent on drugs, Whatever it is they're going through, they're still adults. And it's very hard for parents. What do you want to say to parents? I, I think that it is, it's incumbent in a situation like that where there's an uncertainty about what's going to happen at the Seder with, you know, my, my son Yossi or my daughter Rachel. What's going to happen? If, if I'm concerned about it, I think it's a good thing in a healthy, safe, respectful assertive you notice all the the combination of these variables it's hard to put all these different ways of approaching somebody together but in a safe respectful way it's important to bring initiate the topic way before the night of the seder and to engage that person with love with love and honesty and if there's a concern to bring the concern up you won't make something happen. You're not going to force the person to drink by, by him being upset that you're bringing this up or her that you're bringing this up. What you can do is 
possibly stimulate some thought uh, about responsibility being at the Seder for that young person and and that it would be it, it might be very very important for that person to really really watch their drinking and maybe make a decision to abstain for that evening and not drink at all the problem with watching you know if i had a quarter for every time for every time somebody told me to watch if if people could do that they wouldn't be involved with that Right. So we're running out of time. I really appreciate you coming on, Lou. It's wonderful always uh, speaking with you. And thank you for everything you do for the recovery families. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I want to wish everybody a very good evening, a beautiful Shabbos. And remember, hang in, hold on, and virtually for now still hug tight. Tonight's show is in memory of Rivka Bas Yisrael, please consider to donate online at maskparents.org. Thank you, and have a good night. Nobody wants to get ripped off, broken into, or robbed, but nobody wants to pay a lot of money to have their home protected either. I've got an offer to tell you about to provide home security for your home for less than a dollar a day. For real, with no installation or equipment charges. And this is from a company rated number one by a leading consumer research company. According to the facts, most of you won't even call unless there's a burglary in your neighborhood or something bad happened. So let's give you a reason. Save money. For less than a dollar a day with no other costs, you can get your home secured. Plus, get a lifetime equipment replacement warranty. You need protection for your home. Call the Home Security Hotline right now. 800-755-7921 That's 800-755-7921 Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.